Chapter Ten of Life in the Grey Nunnery at Montreal. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Life in the Grey Nunnery at Montreal by Sarah J. Richardson. Chapter Ten: The Sick Nun. On my return to the kitchen. I found the sick nun sitting as we left her. She asked me by signs if we were alone. I told her she need not fear to speak, for the superior was two flights of stairs above, and no one else was near. Are they all away? she whispered. I assured her that we were quite alone, that she had nothing to fear. She then informed me that she had been nine days under punishment, that when taken from the cell she could not stand or speak, and she was still too weak to walk without assistance. Oh, said she, and the big tears rolled over her cheeks as she said it, I have not a friend in the world. You do not know how my heart longs for love, for sympathy, and kindness. I asked if she had not parents or friends in the world. She replied, I was born in this convent, and know no world but this. You see, she continued with a sad smile, what kind of friends I have here. Oh, if I had a friend! If I could feel that one human being cares for me, I should get better, but it is so long since I heard a kind word. A sob choked her utterance. I told her I would be a friend to her as far as I could. She thanked me, said she was well aware of the difficulties that lay in my way for every expression of sympathy or kind feeling between the nuns was strictly forbidden, and if caught in anything of the kind, a severe correction would follow. But, said she, if you will give me a kind look sometimes, whenever you can do so with safety, it will be worth a great deal to me. You do not know the value of a kind look to a breaking heart. She wept so bitterly, I feared it would injure her health and to divert her mind, I told her where I was born, spoke of my childhood and of my life at the white nunnery. She wiped away her tears and replied, I know all about it. I have heard the priests talk about you, and they say that your father is yet living, that your mother was a firm Protestant, and that it will be hard for them to beat Catholicism into you. But I do not know how you came in that nunnery. Who put you there? I told her that I was placed there by my father when only six years old. Is it possible? she exclaimed, and then added passionately, Curse your father for it. After a moment's silence, she continued, Yes, child, you have indeed cause to curse your father, and the day when you first entered the convent. 
but you do not suffer as much as you would if you had been born here and were entirely dependent on them they fear that your friends may sometime look after you and in case they are compelled to grant them an interview they would wish them to find you in good health and contented but if you had no influential friends outside the convent you would find yourself much worse off than you are now she then said she wished she could get some of the brandy from the cellar her stomach was so weak from long fasting it would retain neither food or drink and she thought the brandy would give it strength she asked if i could get it for her the idea frightened me at first for i knew that if caught in doing it i should be most cruelly punished yet my sympathy for her at length overcame my fears and i resolved to try whatever might be the result i accordingly went upstairs ostensibly to see if the superior wanted me but really to find out where she was and whether she would be likely to come down before i could have time to carry out my plan i trembled a little for i knew that i was guilty of a great misdemeanour in thus boldly presenting myself to ask if i was wanted but i thought it no very great sin to pretend that i thought she called me for i was sure my motives were good whatever they might think of them i had been taught that the end sanctifies the means and i thought i should not be too hardly judged by the great searcher of hearts if for once i applied it my own way i knocked gently at the door i had left but a few moments before it was opened by the superior but she immediately stepped out and closed it again so that i had no opportunity to see what was passing within she sternly bade me return to the kitchen and stay there till she came down a command i was quite ready to obey in the kitchen there was a small cupboard called the key cupboard in which they kept keys of all sizes belonging to the establishment they were hung on hooks each one being marked with the name of the place to which it belonged it was easy for me to find the key to the cellar and having obtained it i opened another cupboard filled with bottles and vials where i selected one that held half a pint placed it in a large pitcher and hastened downstairs i soon found a cask marked brandy turned the faucet and filled the bottle but my heart beat violently and my hand trembled so that i could not hold it steady and some of it ran over into the pitcher it was well for me that i took this precaution for if i had spilt it on the stone floor of the cellar i should have been detected at once i ran upstairs as quickly as possible and made her drink what i had in the pitcher though there was more of it than i should have given her under other circumstances but i did not know what to do with it if i put it in the fire 
or in the sink, I thought they would certainly smell it, and there was no other place, for I was not allowed to go out of doors. I then replaced the key, washed up my pitcher, and secreted the bottle of brandy in the waist of the nun's dress. This I could easily do, their dresses being made with a loose waist, and a large cape worn over them. I then began to devise some way to destroy the scent in the room. I could smell it very distinctly, and I knew that the superior would notice it at once. After trying various expedients to no purpose, I at length remembered that I had once seen a dry rag set on fire for a similar purpose. I therefore took one of the cloths from the sink and set it on fire, let it burn a moment, and threw it under the cauldron. I was just beginning to congratulate myself on my success, when I saw that the nun appeared insensible and about to fall from her chair. I caught her in my arms and leaned her back in the chair, but I did not dare to lay her on the bed without permission, even if I had strength to do it. I could only draw her chair to the side of the room, put a stick of wood under it, and let her head rest against the wall. I was very much frightened, and for a moment thought she was dead. She was pale as a corpse, her eyes closed, and her mouth wide open. Had I really killed her? What if the superior should find her thus? I soon found that she was not dead, for her heart beat regularly, and I began to hope she would get over it before anyone came in. But just as the thought passed my mind, the door opened and the superior appeared. Her first words were, What have you been burning? What smells so? I told her there was a cloth about the sink that I thought unfit for use, and I put it under the cauldron. She then turned towards the nun and asked if she had fainted. I told her that I did not know, but I thought she was asleep, and if she wished me to awaken and assist her to bed, I would do so. To this she consented, and immediately went upstairs again. Glad as I was of this permission, I still doubted my ability to do it alone, for I had little, very little strength, yet I resolved to do my best. It was long, however, before I could arouse her, or make her comprehend what I said, so entirely were her senses stupefied with the brandy. When at length I succeeded in getting her upon her feet, she said she was sure she could not walk, but I encouraged her to help herself as much as possible, told her that I wished to get her away before anyone came in, or we would be certainly found out and punished. This suggestion awakened her fears, and I at length succeeded in assisting her to bed. She was soon in a sound sleep, and I thought my troubles for that time were over. But I was mistaken. In my fright I had quite forgotten the brandy in her dress. 
Somehow the bottle was cracked, and while she slept the brandy ran over her clothes. The superior saw it and asked how she obtained it. Too noble-minded to expose me, she said she drew it herself. I heard the superior talking to a priest about it, and I thought they were preparing to punish her. I did not know what she had told them, but I did not think she would expose me, and I feared if they punished her again, she would die in their hands. I therefore went to the superior and told her the truth about it, for I thought a candid confession on my part might perchance procure forgiveness for the nun, if not for myself. But no, they punished us both, the nun for telling the lie, and me for getting the brandy. For two hours they made me stand with a crown of thorns on my head, while they alternately employed themselves in burning me with hot irons, pinching and piercing me with needles, pulling my hair and striking me with sticks. All this I bore very well, for I was hurt just enough to make me angry. When I returned to the kitchen again, the nun was sitting there alone. She shook her head at me, and by her gestures gave me to understand that someone was listening. She afterwards informed me that the superior was watching us to see if we would speak to each other when we met. I do not know how they punished her, but I heard a priest say that she would die if she suffered much more. Perhaps they thought the loss of that precious bottle of brandy was punishment enough, but I was glad I got it for her, for she had one good dose of it, and it did her good. Her stomach was stronger, her appetite better, and in a few weeks she regained her usual health. One day, while at work as usual, I was called upstairs with the other nuns to see one die. She lay upon the bed and looked pale and thin, but I could see no signs of immediate dissolution. Her voice was strong, and respiration perfectly natural. The nuns were all assembled in her room to see her die. Beside her stood a priest, earnestly exhorting her to confess her sins to him, and threatening her with eternal punishment if she refused. But she replied, No, I will not confess to you, if, as you say, I am really dying, it is with my God I have to do. To him alone will I confess, for he alone can save. If you do not confess to me, exclaimed the priest, I will give you up to the devil. Well, said she, I stand in no fear of a worse devil than you are, and I am quite willing to leave you at any time and try any other place. Even hell itself cannot be worse. I cannot suffer more there than I have here. Daughter, exclaimed the priest, with affected sympathy, 
Must I give you up? How can I see you go down to perdition? It is not yet too late. Confess your sins and repent. I have already confessed my sins to God, and I shall confess to no one else. He alone can save me. Her manner of saying this was solemn, but very decided. The priest saw that she would not yield to his wishes, and raising his voice, he exclaimed, Then let the devil take you! Immediately the door opened, and a figure representing the Roman Catholic idea of his satanic majesty entered the room. He was very black and covered with long hair, probably the skin of some wild animal. He had two long white tusks, two horns on his head, a large cloven foot, and a long tail that he drew after him on the floor. He looked so frightful, and recalled to my mind so vividly the figure that I saw at the white nunnery, that I was very much frightened. Still, I did not believe it was really a supernatural being. I suspected that it was one of the priests dressed up in that way to frighten us, and I now know that such was the fact. But what of that? We all feared the priests, quite as much as we should the evil one himself, even if he should come to us in bodily shape, as they pretended he had done. Most of the nuns were very much frightened when they saw that figure walk up to the bedside, taking good care, however, to avoid the priest, he being so very holy, it was impossible for an evil spirit to go near or even look at him. The priest then ordered us to return to the kitchen, for, said he, the devil has come for this nun's soul, and will take it with him. As we left the room, I looked around on my companions, and wondered if they believed this absurd story. I longed to ask them what they thought of it, but this was not allowed. All interchange of thought or feeling being strictly forbidden, we never ventured to speak without permission when so many of us were present, for someone was sure to tell of it if the least rule was broken. I was somewhat surprised at first that we were all sent back to the kitchen, as but few of us were employed there. But we were soon called back again to look at the corpse. I was inexpressibly shocked at this summons, for I had not supposed it possible for her to die so soon. But she was dead, and that was all we would ever know about it. As we stood around the bed, the priest said she was an example of those in the world called heretics, that her soul was in misery and would remain so for ever. No masses or prayers could avail her then, for she could never be prayed out of hell. Sins like hers could never be forgiven. I continued to work in the kitchen as usual for many months after this occurrence, and for a few weeks 
the sick nun was there a great part of the time. Whenever we were alone, and sure that no one was near, we used to converse together, and a great comfort it was to us both. I felt that I had found in her one real friend to sympathize with me in my grievous trials, and with whom I could sometimes hold communication without fear of betrayal. I had proved her and found her faithful, therefore I did not fear to trust her. No one can imagine, unless they know by experience, how much pleasure we enjoyed in the few stolen moments that we spent together. I shall never forget the last conversation I had with her. She came and sat down where I was assisting another nun to finish a mat. She asked us if we knew what was going on in the house. As I came from my room, said she, I saw the priests and superiors running along the halls, and they appeared so much excited I thought something must be wrong. As they passed me, they told me to go to the kitchen and stay there. What does it all mean? Of course we did not know, for we had neither seen or heard anything unusual. Well, said she, they are all so much engaged upstairs, we can talk a little and not be overheard. I want to know something about the people in the world. Are they really cruel and cold-hearted, as the priests say they are? When you was in the world, were they unkind to you? On the contrary, I replied, I would gladly return to them if I could get away from the convent. I should not be treated any worse, at all events, and I shall embrace the first opportunity to go back to the world. That is what I have always thought, since I was old enough to think at all, said she, and I have resolved a great many times to get away if possible. I suppose they tell us about the cruelty in the world just to frighten us and prevent us from trying to escape. I am so weak now, I do not suppose I could walk out of Montreal even if I should leave the convent, but if I ever get strong enough I shall certainly try to escape from this horrible place. Oh, I could tell you things about this convent that would curdle the blood in your veins. The other nun said that she had been once in the world, and every one was kind to her. I shall try to get out again some day, said she, but we must keep our resolutions to ourselves, for there is no one here that we can trust. Those whom we think our best friends will betray us if we give them a chance. I do believe that some of them delight in getting us punished. The sick nun said, I have never exposed anyone, and I never will. I have the secrets of a great many hid in my breast, that nothing shall ever extort from me. Here she was interrupted, and soon left the room. I never saw her again, whether she was under punishment 
or was so fortunate as to make her escape, I do not know. As no questions could be asked, it was very little we could know of each other. If one of our number escaped, the fact was carefully concealed from the rest, and if she was caught and brought back, no one ever knew it except those who had charge of her. The other nun who worked in the room with me watched me very closely, having heard me declare my intention to leave the first opportunity. She determined to go with me, if possible. End of chapter 10